welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. Uh, I am Leonard Lopate. Joseph Ledoux, a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University, has traced the evolution of survival behaviors from the dawn of life on Earth almost 4 billion years ago to the development of the human brain's capacity for consciousness, language, and culture. All animals have survival instincts, and humans share basic behaviors with all other animals. Since Darwin, emotions have been viewed as states of mind inherited from our animal ancestors, but the connection between human and animal emotions may not be provable. And these ideas and many more are discussed in depth in Joseph Ledoux's new book from Viking called The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious brains. And I'm very pleased that it brings Joseph Ledoux to our show now. Glad to be here. Uh, didn't you start your career as a student of business administration? What led you to switch to science I and then studying to... the brain? I missed what you said, sorry. I, I said you started uh, your career in as, in as a student of business administration. No, that's right. That's a far I cry to... from... Uh, from what you're doing now and uh, being a, well, uh, I, I, a neuroscientist and I was psychologist. Marketing and, you know, I was uh, interested in consumer protection. It was the late 60s and it wasn't that cool to be in, in marketing. And I took some courses in psychology and fell in love with that and took a course with a guy studying the brain and absolutely fell in love with that. And back then, we didn't know too much about you know, the brain. You need to know a little bit, left, right, front, back. But there weren't a lot of uh, details. And so it wasn't that hard to jump into the field. These days, you have to have all kinds of background, you know, all kinds of math and molecular biology and biochemistry. But it was pretty easy back then. And now you have to study with people like you. Uh, you, <laughs> begin, you begin your book uh, 10 billion years after the uh, universe began, almost 14 billion years ago. Is that when life began? Uh, well, life began roughly 3.7 billion years ago. Ah. So I guess you count backwards from 14 and you get you know, mm -hmm. to four or so, but it's a little bit before four. So like 3.7, that's kind of the official uh, birthday of life, according to the experts. And a lot of this is based on you know, new ways of um, tagging molecular um, aspects of life and tracing genes back to the beginning and so forth. And you begin your book by explaining evolution. How can understanding the evolutionary history of life on Earth, beginning with single cell organisms, help us understand ourselves, including things like emotions and conscious experiences? Well, let me tell you how I got to the beginning, because that, that will, rather than going in the other direction, because, you know, I've studied how the brain detects and responds to danger, I don't know, for almost 40 years, maybe longer. Um, and... The, my work led to the, uh, the involvement of the amygdala, part of the brain that everybody has heard of these days, um, in detection responding to danger. And so I, wanted, I started asking, well, how far back does that go? I mean, obviously humans do it, rats do it. We, we study rats all the time. And, um, you know, a, a snake will you know, dart away from you if it doesn't bite you. And fish will swim away from danger. Um, but, you know, it doesn't stop there. Bugs and slugs and things in the ocean and um, all, every animal has to respond to danger. And it turns out that the molecules involved in learning about novel dangers are the same in us as in these invertebrates like flies and bugs and slugs. What about bacteria? So, 
which we're, we're going to get to that. All this life forms that exist today. So, oh, we'll get to it. Okay, I'll yeah, be. Well, that's where we're going. So the, the the fact that we have bugs and flies and so forth and humans and and rats having the same molecules involved in learning about danger means that they had some common ancestor, and that ancestor goes back about 630 million years ago. So that's pretty close to the beginning of animal life, but it's not quite there. But even organisms like jellyfish and snails, uh, sorry, slow, what am I trying to say? Uh, uh, sponges, <laughs> jellyfish and sponges also have these same molecules. And the ancestor, the single-cell ancestor of sponges, the first animal, the single-cell ancestor of the first animal also has these molecules, and it doesn't even have a nervous system, but it does learn. So that, that's kind of mind-blowing that you don't need a nervous system to learn because we think of learning as being something that nervous systems do. But it's true even of bacteria. So, you know, that what happened was I started asking how far back does detection of danger go, and I got to the beginning of life. And from there, I said, well, I need to now climb back up the tree of life and see how behavior has changed over that long 3.7 billion year story. You mentioned jellyfish, and there have been these commercials on television for a drug called Prevagen, where they say they have a, a secret ingredient that they've gotten from jellyfish. Is that likely? Oh, yes, it is. You know, for example, Everybody's heard of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, Prozac and things like that. Um, there's research that's relevant to that that's being done in plants. So you don't have to be an, a human or an animal in order for the information relevant to what goes on in us to be studied. Um, and just as you can find it in plants, and we have, you know, way back we connect up with plants because we're all multicellular organisms derived from uh, protozoa, um, but even bacteria can have single-cell uh, lives and molecules that are relevant to us. So jelly, it's, no, it's no big deal that a jellyfish could have molecules that are relevant to our uh, existence. How do protozoa and other single-cell organisms detect and respond to danger? Do they have so they memories? Have, uh, can yes, they learn they, new they, things? They can. They can. Um, this was studied in the turn of the 20th century by a fellow named Jennings, Herbert Spencer Jennings, and he showed that protozoa will move away from uh, dangerous things, toxic chemicals in, the, in their water environment, and they'll swim towards nutrients, so they have approach and avoidance, um, and they even learn about what's good for them and what's bad. So they will, you, know, you put a novel kind of danger in there, and they'll learn that it's either good or bad and approach and avoid it. So you don't need a nervous system to learn. You don't need a nervous system to behave. Behavior is not a feature or, you know, a kind of mark of the mind. It's a mark of survival. The bacterial cells living 3.7 billion years ago had to detect danger, respond to danger, balance fluids and ions, thermoregulate, reproduce, all of the things that are important in our life as survival functions are a characteristic of the entire history of life. So these things have nothing to do in the evolutionary sense um, with psychology. You know, psychology is not why a bacterial cell moves away from danger. Its body is just designed with chemical detectors on the surface of its body, its single cell body. And if it detects 
something harmful, for example, a high concentration of acid in the, in the water, it simply flips uh, over and moves in a different direction. So behavior is, you know, for us, often thought of as a window on, on our minds, and it can be, but we have to be very careful when we make those determinations because the same behavior uh, can be controlled by you consciously or can be a product of an unconscious system. A good example is, you know, from my own area of research on the amygdala, which is often described as a fear center. The idea is that we have these, these uh, fears that are bubbling up out of the amygdala because we've inherited these fears from our animal ancestors. This is something that my work, this is an idea my work contributed to, but it's not something that I endorse. Uh, in fact, I don't think it's true. The amygdala does detect and respond to danger, and usually when we detect and respond to danger, we're feeling afraid. And so we conflate those two things, the fact that we're de detecting and responding to danger with the fact that we're feeling afraid and assume that it must all be coming out of the same thing because they happen at the same time. But when we study this, for example, in people, uh, there are people who have amygdala damage who can still feel afraid. In other words, damage to the amygdala doesn't necessarily eliminate the capacity to feel fear. Um, what it interferes with is the ability to detect and respond to danger. And this has led to the entire kind of basic principle of drug discovery. Take rats and mice and put them through challenging situations. Uh, basically, these tests that you know, are sort of amygdala-type tests. Uh, if the rat freezes more in the presence of a dangerous stimulus and you give him the drug that makes him freeze less, you assume he's less afraid, and therefore, when you give that drug to people, they'll feel less fear and anxiety. But the whole pharmaceutical industry is in a crisis in terms of psychopharmaceutical treatments. Um, the things just don't work as well as they are hoped that it's been hoped that they would work. And I think the problem is that you know, there's no way to understand a human conscious experience like fear from studying a rat or a mouse. What you can study is their behavior. And that information is very relevant to our behavior because it's the same circuit in that case. The amygdala is making us detect and respond to danger and move away from it and so forth, or freeze, uh, just as it is in a rat. But fear is something else. Fear is our cognitive understanding, our awareness that we are in harm's way. It's not just a, it's not an innate reaction. It's a, an interpretation that we apply through our cognitive processes and the highest centers of our brain to understand what is happening to us. You know, it's often said that these emotions like fear are universal, present in everyone. Darwin said this because he found that uh, people around the world have similar kinds of facial expressions. But that's making the same kind of mistake. These facial expressions are hardwired, but that doesn't mean that the emotion that is also occurring at the same time is coming out of the same part of the brain that's controlling the responses. Uh, we have to be very careful in, in how we judge these things because um, we can make conceptual mistakes. And if we don't know exactly what we're looking for in the brain, we're not going to find it. And I think that's been the case in the study of emotion. We've assumed that emotions are these innate states that are, and that we can use these behavioral and physiological responses controlled by areas like the amygdala to tell us when someone is afraid or anxious. But it, that's not the case. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming 
uh, at WBAI.org. My guest is Joseph Ledoux, author of a number of books on psychology. The one we are discussing, his most recent from Viking, is The Deep History of Ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got conscious brains. So uh, where is the amygdala located? Okay, so let's uh, imagine that I'm going to put an arrow well, through well, your Well, let me, let me even back up. Aren't there two amygdala? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's that, <laughs> that we say the meaning, you know, the whole package. Oh. Um, and that, that's, sure. that's, you're correct. That's a misnomer. Uh, there are two. There are two of everything in the brain, except uh, basically everything. Yeah, it's, the only thing that I can think of that's not two would be something like the corpus callosum that connects the two sides together. There's one in the middle, you know, that, that kind of connects the two sides. But every brain structure you might think of, the neocortex, the hippocampus, the amygdala, hypothalamus, they're all two, one on each side. We have a bilaterally organized brain. So, yeah, the, but if we were to focus on one amygdala, and I put an arrow through your ear and an arrow through your eye, where those two arrows meet up would roughly be where it is. It's kind of like behind your ear. It's in what's called the temporal lobe, but it's deep into the temporal lobe. But so that's human. There. What about other? Uh, where where do amygdala begin? What stage of of uh, evolution? Fish. Fish. Early. So fish, fish have amygdala. Yeah. Every vertebrate has a vertebrate brain, and. All of the major parts of the human brain are present in a fish brain. They're just, you know, smaller and perhaps undeveloped in, in many cases. Uh, but the general parts are there. Now, a big controversy over the decades has been whether, you know, non-mammalian vertebrates have any neocortex. And uh, that has been resolved to the, um, I, uh, to, by, by concluding them, and the evidence points to um, reptiles and birds also having at least remnants of neocortex. So it's not something that simply hap happened when mammals evolved, but something that's been there even uh, through the reptilian level. Um, but the fish, I think, are not considered to have any so-called neocortex. Um, but fish do have many of the lower-level structures like hypothalamus and amygdala and striatum. Um, many, many of the brain areas are conserved, because we have a brain that is, um, you know, built on the fish brain. Over the course of evolution, things have changed, but it's more additions rather than subtractions. So we have a lot of, you know, uh, complexity in our brain that a fish brain doesn't have. But the same kind of structure is there from from the very beginning of uh, the vertebrates till now. So the, you have a, a hindbrain, which is concerned with the more basic functions of keeping you alive, like controlling your uh, respiratory, respiratory, so respiratory uh, rhythm, your heartbeat and digestion and things like that. And um, next level up would be the midbrain, where you have more kind of reflexive sorts of behaviors. A little bit higher up, we get into the forebrain at the base of the forebrain, or structures that are involved in kind of innate behaviors, uh, instincts, you might think of them as. And as you go further up, you have more sort of learned, goal-directed kinds of behaviors and, and finally more cognitive control uh, when you get to the neocortex. So there, there are a lot of different um, aspects of the human brain, but many of them can be traced back to the, uh, the fish brain. In fact, if and the you, amygdala. 
The amygdala is in the forebrain. It's one of the, uh, in the lower part of the forebrain, so that it's part of the, um, uh, the, the, these kinds of innate behaviors and, and physiological responses that um, um, are, you know, what, what we might think of as kind of uh, an instinct. So in the presence of, a, say, a snake at your feet, you will freeze instantly uh, without even knowing that you're seeing the snake. Only secondarily do you consciously recognize that there's a snake there. And as part of that conscious recognition, you begin to pull in memories about snakes and things you know about snakes and things you know about your reaction to snakes. And all of that contributes to that conscious experience of fear that you have because fear is your understanding that you are in danger. If you don't know that that snake is going to harm you, then you aren't afraid of it. Fear is about what's going to happen to you. Um, and that's a very complicated cognitive process. It's not something that comes out of the amygdala. I mean, the amygdala kind of contributes to it, but more like in setting the volume. It's like, you know, when we used to go to restaurants in New York, if you go in and there's, the music was too loud, somebody would say, turn down the music. Well, you know, let's say it's some kind of really unpleasant heavy metal song that was really loud. It's still kind of unpleasant because of the nature of the music, if you don't like that kind of music. But it's not as disruptive, not as uh, uh, disturbing or, or, or um, annoying to you. And so I think what the amygdala is doing is kind of adding some of that volume to the level of fear. You can still be afraid, they, but not... Go ahead. Are amygdala circuits actually survival circuits? Uh, yeah, I, that's, I, that's the way I like to think of them, because... They, you know, they've so often been portrayed as fear circuits, but that adds this kind of element of subjectivity and consciousness, conscious fear, uh, into the amygdala, which I don't think it has. Because, as I said, even an, a person with damage to the amygdala can still feel fear in some situations. So, does does fear cause us to respond the way we do, or does the response cause the fear? Well, it's a kind of. I think the. Fear, is, fear can be the source of a response uh, to danger, but it's a very late process in the sequence of things. So the first thing that will happen is, for example, your amygdala might be activated, and that will happen unconsciously. You find yourself freezing, your heart rate uh, increased, your, you know, your chest is pumping, uh, your palms are sweating, uh, you're kind of feeling edgy and so forth. And as you begin to look out into the world, you see that the reason that you're having these kinds of uh, um, experiences is because there's a snake at your feet. So now you become afraid. But the other stuff is not fear. The fact that you're edgy and, and uh, your heart is beating and your muscles are tense, that's not fear. Those are survival responses that are associated with fear and often correlated with it. And uh, they uh, they activate uh, things uh, to to get us away, uh, whether it's uh, fins or wings or legs or whatever, uh, uh, all pretty much the same kind of uh, similar response in an odd way. Uh, because I, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about here is uh, is the distinction between behavior and emotions one of the main points of your book here. It is. It is. That, that emotion is a cognitively generated experience, a subjective state in your mind, um, whereas behavior is more of a 
non-consciously controlled process. I mean, there are conscious aspects of behavior, but for the most part, our behavior uh, has, has these non-conscious control factors in it. Don't we often assume that our emotions cause our behavior? We do. And, you know, that was, that's a big controversy that William James started. He said, do we run from the bear because we're afraid, or are we afraid because we mm -hmm. run? And, you know, I think he was right on part of it, that the reason we run from the bear is not because we're afraid. But the answer to, that he gave to why we are afraid is that he said that it's because our body tells our brain that we should be afraid. I don't think that's quite true. I mean, I think the body contributes, but fear is, the, is a, a psychological cognitive process. You can think of it as a kind of mental model that your brain creates in a situation of danger. You've got a stimulus that's dangerous, the snake. Um, that's going to trigger memories. Memories are going to tr trigger um, what's called an emotion schema, which is a body of knowledge, the kind of memory, a, a big storehouse of, of knowledge about what danger is and your response to danger and how, um, you know, how likely it is that you're going to be harmed by the situation. And all of that is kind of in this mental model that, you're, that your brain is creating and that is what you become conscious of, that mental model. So it's, it's a much higher level cognitive process than, than we normally uh, give it credit for. Would it be I accurate don't... to say that behaviors and feelings occur in parallel as, yes, as products of different brain circuits? That's the perfect way to say it. They uh, interact. Of course they interact. But the circuits involved are different. And as I said, that's why I think the medications that have been developed to help people aren't more effective because they're targeting structures like the amygdala, but fear is being generated at a higher level. Now, we have to take a little break here on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, but uh, we usually play a little bit of, of music, and this time we're going to play some music from a band called the Amygdaloids, which is right. a band where, are you the, the lead singer of the Amygdaloids? I am, yes. Uh, and uh, the are all the members of your band scientists? Well, we started, it started out, we were um, uh, three neuroscientists and an, uh, bio, an evolutionary biologist. Um, but over the years, you know, the band shifted a bit. Uh, with the three core members remain the same. So it's two neuroscientists, one biologist, and whoever else we can get to play bass. Okay, well, we're going to uh, listen to a little bit of a, a, a song from uh, one, well, one of your recordings. And, and then I have to take care of a little bit of business. And I'll come back to our discussion of your book after that, okay? We could listen to more, uh, but before I get back to my conversation with Joseph 
E. Ledoux, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this pandemic. Again, the number 516-620-3602, the website give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now, we'll receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, this fascinating book uh, that we're talking about on today's show, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by my guest, Joseph E. Ledoux. Um, and uh, something great for you to do while you support WBAI uh, at the same time. Uh, as uh, well, you're supporting independent radio in New York City at the same time. But whatever level you're able to show your support for the show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep this show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602. And if you've made Leonard Lopate at large a part of your daily life, consider stepping up for someone who's just discovering it. Why not give the gift of, of uh, an hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope to bring you in each installment of this program to one of your fellow listeners? Again, you can do that by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you. And uh, we return now to uh, my conversation with neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux, his latest book, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How we got conscious brains it's from viking and when your band is performing do you get stage fright is the amygdala at, at work there no that's when i'm relaxed <laughs> i see a little nervous before but you know once we're going it's good uh -huh. you know, I'm, I'm gonna add a bonus to your uh thing and if anyone who signs up right now during this program and will get the book if they write to me right by email i'll also send them uh an album Oh, wow. That's fabulous. Okay. Well, another reason to call and become a member, uh, a reminder uh, that that number is 516, uh, oh boy, uh, 516-620-3602. Uh, I'm still a bit confused about how things changed when uh, animals got larger and larger. Um, how much more complex did the whole process become? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting to, to think about um, what happened when the dinosaurs were uh, extinguished by, you know, the environmental catastrophe of the time. At that time, mammals were tiny little creatures. Uh, there were no big mammals. They were all like very, very small um, uh, organisms. And they survived because they their energy demands were very low. The large energy-guzzling dinosaurs uh, perished because there was, the environment didn't support that kind of uh, uh, lifestyle anymore. 
I think there's a message for our current situation in, in life there, too, which is that we are the current energy-guzzling dinosaurs mm-hmm. of our time. And the question is, will we uh, allow, will we have a condition that will allow our kind to persist very long? Species only last about 10 million years on average, and we're kind of pushing the limits of, of that right now. But anyway, so the, we had these small little mammals that were um, able to now um, not only uh, survive the catastrophe, but also to invade and inhabit new territories, new kinds of niches. And when that happens, then the, the animals begin to diverge and new species are created. And because mammals were then the head of the food chain on Earth, they began to um, proliferate. Their body styles match the environment in which they were living. And now we have a tremendous diversity of, uh, of mammals on Earth um, that uh, have their body styles. You know, you, some swim, some fly, some walk on two legs, some walk on four legs, some have fur, some uh, have very little fur like us. And so it, it's, a, um, it's a matter of the kind of environment in which the species is pulled away from the uh, previous species and, and begins to flourish in that creates the body styles that we have. If we understand how bodies change over the long evolutionary history of life, do we gain insights into why present day bodies are the way they are? Well, you know, I think there are changes uh, that that uh, are taking rap- rapidly taking place in the human body uh, because of changes in the environment that that um, uh, and the ways we're, we're using the environment. For example, increase in, in sugar load and um, um, reduction in more healthy lifestyles and, and um, you know, nutrition. All of those things have contributed to you know, overweightness and obesity. Uh, and so our bodies are, are, are shifting quite a bit from the way they used to be. They're also but hunter, from, excuse me, but hunter-gatherers didn't necessarily have longer lifespans than we do. No, no. With our, we've created a, a world in which we are able to allow our bodies through medical advances and so forth to last much longer uh, than even a century ago. Um, but we're not living as well as we could probably if, if we had uh, better practices. How did the transition from one-celled protozoa to multicellular animals pose a challenge for coordination in a larger body mass? Does a large body size create challenges for rapid communication between cells in, in distant parts of the body? Yes, and it's interesting that the, uh, the two big groups of multicellular organisms, plants and animals, um, have solved that problem very differently. So for plants, um, they have a vascular system in which nutrients uh, pulled in from the, from the roots can be shipped through to the leaves way out on, on the top of the tree, um, but it's a very slow process. So um, the, and you know, also plants will behave. They can respond to sunlight Leaves will, you know, tilt. The the, the whole branch or the whole uh, stem can bend. In the case of, say, a sunflower, and we've uh, learned recently that they actually can communicate. Trees communicate with each other. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. I mean, I wouldn't want to call it cognition, but there's a lot of, you know, information exchange. Um, but it's a it's a very slow process for them. Um, the the innovation that animals provided was a nervous system. 
Mm-hmm. Animals are the only organisms on Earth that have ever had a nervous system. It's a unique animal feature. And what that allows is for stimulus on one side of the body to have an effect on a response on the other side of the body. Uh, that, that's in a, a, a fraction of a second. So let's say you, um, I just startled you. So an inf- information going into your ear is going to cause your whole body to move, and that's going to happen in a few, uh, like 100 milliseconds or a couple hundred milliseconds. Um, and so that's something that's very unusual in life to be able to respond so quickly to danger or to, you know, nice well, things how, as well. How does that work? Is our nervous system really the best electrical system you could ever create? No, uh, it's, it's, it's not quite the same. You know, we do have these neural wires called axons in, in our nervous system, but they don't work in exactly the same way as electricity. In fact, they're not very good at traditional electrical conduction. I think electricity would, in, a, in a copper wire is much faster uh, than in a nerve uh, because the process of neural transduction or of neural uh, uh, transmission across the axon is a, very, is a relatively slow process. It involves the, uh, the, the moment-to-moment, but it's like point-to-point change in the chemistry of the axon that allows that an electrical impulse started at one point to slowly go down. I mean, it's pretty fast. It's, it's, it's slow relative to electricity in the, in the conventional sense, but it's a pretty uh, fast process in terms of what can happen in nature. So what, what happened was, uh, in animals, we took the conventional method of communication that had been around since um, you know, unicellular organisms, where the release of a chemical outside of the body of a cell can affect something in an adjacent cell. But that has to take place between closely situated uh, cells for that to happen. But what the... What happened with neurons is the cell body kind of expanded a little bit so that the distance that, uh, that the um, uh, chemical would have to re- be released over didn't change much. So if you have a piece of the, of the cell that protrudes out for a certain distance and it then releases the chemical next to a, another cell, another neuron, then you have a quick communication if you, do, if you use electricity to get from point A to point B. In other words, you've got uh, a cell body. Electricity is generated there by molecular mechanisms. The electricity then shoots down the axon, the protrusion, and causes the release of the chemical. So you start with a new thing, the electricity, that releases the chemical, and then you have the same old-fashioned kind of uh, communication. So that's how we can you know, take information from our eyes uh, to our mouth very quickly so that we can see something and talk about it because there are a lot of steps in the brain that are taking it from the eyes into the speech centers and from the speech centers down into the muscles and so forth. It's a, it, a lot of stuff is happening, but it happens very fast. Do all living things share the capacity to change body responses to experience? And is memory the ability to retain, to retain those changes for later use? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the demonstration of learning in bacteria is still sort of on the uh, theoretical side. I mean, they have the, the capacity. It's just hard to, um, you know, it's hard to study bacteria in terms of behavior because 
most of what you have to do is study them as a group. You have to study group activity rather than individuals. Um, and so the, it's not known exactly whether they, an individual bacterium can learn. But probably as a group, it's a little clearer that they, they show adaptive responses to, to uh, danger and other things and to food. Um, but certainly in protozoa, which is a different kind of cell than a bacteria, it's one closer to, to what we are. Uh, the protozoa, like um, uh, a paramecium, for example, um, can swim towards and away from danger and learn about it. So when, when, a, a, when you respond to something and store that information for the future, that's learning, that's putting it into memory, and then when you retrieve that information for, in the future for the present moment, then we're talking about uh, using memory. So learning is creating memory, and then memory is used to control behavior in the future. Now, humans share non-conscious behaviors with other animals. Is it possible that animals other than humans also share the conscious feeling of fear? So what we have to say about that is because of what we know about the human experience of fear and the brain circuits involved, it's very unlikely that animals other than humans can have the exact kind of experience we have. What's more Even likely, though we read all of those things into our pets, for example, are we absolutely. just projecting when we think that uh, our dog or cat looks happy or looks scared? We're, we're projecting what we think, you know, what we would experience if we were that cat. You know, mm -hmm. it's been said that this anthropomorphism may be an innate feature of the human brain that arose you know, millions of years ago when our um, early ancestors were domesticating animals and it was useful for them to kind of put themselves in the animal's mind in order to get the animal to, you know, work on the farm and to do things because you could kind of do a little bit of psychology on it by using human psychology. Um, but just because something might be innate in us doesn't mean scientifically that's the explanation of why the animal is, is doing it. In other words, we project these things but that doesn't mean the animal has those things. I'm not saying they don't have. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that they probably have some version of fear, some version of hunger. I mean, obviously they want to eat, but the question is, do they experience what we experience when we are afraid or having sex or whatever we're doing that we call emotions? Um, and I think it's, it's unlikely that it's similar because the kind of thing that is characteristic of a human emotion is that yourself is part of that experience. I have uh, in, the, in the book, uh, I have the expression, no self, no fear, and I even made a, a t-shirt out of that. Um, the idea is that if you don't know that it's you that's having the experience, you can't feel anything about it. You have your presence, your conscious entity, that what you know about yourself has to be part of that experience. Now, the human brain is probably the only brain that has this kind of reflective self-awareness, this highest level of consciousness about who you are, and that requires a, an understanding of you as an entity that had a past and has an end. That is what a self is. It's a, it's a continuation of who you are over time and who you might be in the future. And oh, it's, un Go ahead. it's unlikely that that capacity, uh, I mean, many, many scientists agree 
that that kind of capacity is probably not present in other animals. They could have conscious experiences of a different type that don't involve self-involvement in the way that ours does. They could be aware that there's food or that there's a mate present. Uh, They could have tendencies to desire, uh, in a sense, but not in the sense of personal desire. It would be more of a kind of uh, stimulus response, stimulus craving, but in a more impersonal, implicit kind of way. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of BSing because we don't know what's inside the, the mind but, of but, any other animal. But are you suggesting that Darwin was wrong when he viewed emotions as states of mind, some of which are shared by humans and other animals? Yes, I think he set the entire path of emotion research on the wrong road. <laughs> he was a great man, nonetheless. But that doesn't mean he's. I mean, just because he got something wrong doesn't mean he's wrong. <laughs> theory of evolution by natural selection is a fantastic and important uh, discovery, not even a theory. It's like, you know, truth. Um, But that doesn't mean that everything the man said was right. You know, so a reporter asked him, said, Charles, why do you talk about animals as if they have human emotions? When you talk about body parts, you talk about humans as having animal body parts. And he said, well, I think it's kinder and it will be more accepted by the public. Because at that time, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty in Animals and Children as a kind of afterthought had been established. Um, and in general, there, you know, there's been a long tradition of, um, of anthropomorphic kind of anti-vivisectionist uh, um, activity in the UK. And, you know, I'm not saying that that we should abuse animals. Uh, we do research on animals because, in my case, I do it because I think it can uh, lead to better treatments um, for aspects of, of emotions, not for the emotion itself. But it's also important to treat the behavioral and physiological symptoms. And in fact, we can, we can think of a problem like anxiety as a constellation of symptoms, each of which is controlled by a different brain center. And that's a different perspective from the one that there's an anxiety center or a fear center and so forth, uh, that there, we have to think of the various aspects of what happens in a situation of fear or anxiety as being products of different parts of the brain. So it's not just like one thing that's bubbling up as a package uh, when we're in danger. Now, we, uh, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, about another minute or so, but I, I was wondering about the assumptions that we make about other people. Are they based on the fact that other humans have brains that are similar to ours? And is it a mistake to attribute, uh, to, to, to make assumptions about other people, what other people are feeling? Well, it's, it's difficult to know what someone's feeling based on their behavior, simply because we don't know what aspect of the brain, what part of the brain is controlling their behavior. Um, we do know that other people have brains that are similar to ours, all the same parts. So because a human brain has a, because a human has a human brain, we can make assumptions about how that brain works. So if I'm conscious, you're probably conscious. Uh, but because animals have different brains, it's a little trickier to say that the animal is conscious just because it looks like it's conscious. 
Joseph Ledoux is the Henry and Lucy Moses Professor of Science at NYU, where he's a member of the Center for Neural Science in the Department of Psychology. He's written a number of books, The Emotional Brain, Anxious Using, Anxious Using the Brain to Understand and Treat Fear and Anxiety, and the one we've been discussing, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains, published by Viking. What a pleasure it's been talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leonard. Hope to do it in person next time. Yes, me too. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. If you are discovering our program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere that you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. And if, you, if you'd like to write a comment or to just say hello, you can uh, send me an email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult financial position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., at least when things are working well, please go right now to our website, give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep community radio alive live in New York and throughout the metropolitan area. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going to that website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air. And, and one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And they, they give us cash flow. Um, as I mentioned earlier, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing uh, called The um, the Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by my guest, Joseph E. Ledoux. And Mr. Ledoux has kindly also offered to send a uh, copy of his CD, the CD by his his group that uh, that he performs with, the uh, called the uh, the Migdaloids. <laughs> so uh, a, a number of reasons to become a member right now. Uh, give us that call again. It is five one six six two zero three six zero two. Or go to give to wbai.org. That's given, then the number two, wbai.org. And uh, please make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Big thanks to everyone's already stepped up to support the show and the station because we rely 100% on the generosity of listeners like you. Uh, we hope you can tune in tomorrow when I'll be talking with Victoria de Grazia about her book, The Perfect Fascist. See you then.